everyone. Welcome back to Back in My Play. This is a fantastic episode that I have lined up for you today because I have another developer on the line from Renegade Kid, Jules Watchem. I think I got the name right. You did. You nailed it. Good job, man. Hey, awesome. how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. We're, we're actually we're recording some of, this, uh, some of this stuff like in advance. So this is New Year's Day that we're talking. So it's perfect. We uh, reached the future of 2015 for all these games that we played growing up that this was the future. But uh, now we hit it and it's pretty much still the same. Um, so first off, before we get into to anything else, um, I, I would love to hear your history, your personal history with with games like what what was the what were the first games that you played growing up and obviously you know people can probably tell from the accent uh you may have not grown up in the states where we just had like atari and then nintendo um you may have had a you know very different background yeah and no, then my first so i'm from i'm from england and yeah my first experiences uh where my, my dad is is really into com- computers so we had a spectrum 48k Spectrum, yeah, Spectrum 48K, yeah. The one with the rubber keyboard um, back in the day. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he would even kind of get the, the, you know, the video game magazines of the time that had the printouts of the, the code that you would enter to create your own game or whatever. And he would even spend hours typing that in, uh, obviously to find that there's probably something wrong printed in the magazine and you have to debug it yourself to actually get it working. And I always just found that fascinating, you know, because at that time that, that was cutting edge, which is laughable now compared to what we're playing with. But at that time, that was a computer in the house. That's amazing. Um, and uh, it, it was pretty neat at the time, little tiny little black slick little, you know, machine with little horrible gray little rubber keys on it anyway so my dad was playing with that so i obviously would play the games um and for those that don't know you know you would load the games on a on a cassette tape um so you'd plug in a cassette you know tape to the machine press play and then the machine would listen to the weird weird little noises going on and then eventually a game would load up minutes later if you're lucky um and then you would play it things like jet set willy uh, manic minor um uh, hungry horace uh games like that which i loved at the time um and then eventually I was lucky enough to to get my own spectrum when it when it upgraded to the spectrum plus which had um, more memory um, it had a, a more of a physical hard kind of keyboard you know much more uh, you know more robust kind of case so anyway so that was my that was the beginning of, of my gaming experience so so you're specifically talking about having to physically put in all the code for these games into the computer and then hit enter and just hope that it works yeah because i don't think you could even save it could you maybe you could but i don't think so <laughs> i think yeah i think it's pretty much live it's like maybe you could i can't remember now um probably not right because you'd have to save it to a cassette tape could you do that i can't remember I don't but know. um yeah it was it was wild west it was fun you know it was like a toy a really geeky fun little toy so so after the the spectrum um obviously uh that that is what a lot of people in England and the UK really, really grew up with, um, yeah. with Nintendo obviously coming a little bit later and Atari being more, uh, for the States. So, um, you know, after that, what, what were you kind of moving on to? What was your, your next console? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so after that, I went to the Commodore 64, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, had a bit more power, um, a bit, you know, more graphic power and, and stuff like that. Um, 
and what well, more memory I guess and then I mean from there I kind of leapt onto uh, machines that included the the Commodore Amiga mm-hmm. um, the Atari ST um, and uh, and that really for me really felt like the beginning of not only enjoying at that time amazing looking games um, you know some of the some of the games and the companies that I that were just uh, to me just absolutely incredible at that time were the Bitmap Brothers mm-hmm. uh, releasing games um, like you know Gods and Zenon and Zenon Two and uh, Magic Pockets and oh I mean just uh, so many uh, so many amazing games um, Speedball Chaos Engine you know just trying to rattle through all the ones I mean they just had such a library of games and all of them uh, hit all of the notes you know amazing graphics. Uh, good inventive gameplay, uh, usually an amazing audio track, um, you know, and the way they presented themselves is almost like, you know, rock stars. They'd have photos of them with this awesome, you know, helicopter behind them or whatever. And, you know, they're dressed in these cool black trench coats and they're just you know, had their sunglasses on. It was really, really fun and exciting as a kid to have these idols, you know, that were making these games that were amazing. So, um, and, and for me with the Amiga and the ST, uh, again, there were computers that had keyboards, so you could actually get in there and mess around with the code. Um, I'm not a programmer, but I, I, I'm into technical stuff, but I never actually got into programming. But there were programs like Shoot'em Up Construction Kit um, that were made by uh, Sensible Software, who made Sensible Soccer and uh, Cannon Fodder and a bunch of awesome games back in the day. Um, uh, that was a really, really horribly crude but awesome package where you could make your own sprites and set scroll speeds and um and actually kind of create your own game i mean not really but you could personalize what already existed and then change some of the numbers to make it somewhat customized and that was really exciting to get into that and to start making games um yeah so that was the kind of the next step for me um and at that time i started well prior to that i had seen you know the nes i mean a friend of mine down the road had an nes because his dad would go to the states um so i saw that with you know mario and duck hunt and stuff like that um and uh and then eventually i did i did move on to the snes and the genesis and um i actually ended up um well i guess this is now moving into i guess my my first step in my career um i ended up uh working in london uh for a video game magazine called the one um which at that time was focusing on the Omega and ST games and doing reviews and news and stuff of, of games in the industry. And I was about 17 at the time, so I was pretty young. Um, and uh, upstairs, actually on the top floor of that building, this was EMAP Images in London, um, was um, uh, a magazine called Mean Machines, uh, run by Julian Rignall, who's all over at usgamer.net right now. And he's, you know, he's started IGN and he's done all kinds of fun stuff. Anyway, so that was up, upstairs. And I would find myself going upstairs quite frequently because, you know, seeing the Super Nintendo, the Neo Geo, the Genesis, all of that stuff was just amazing. I mean, for me, leagues beyond what the Amiga and the ST was doing graphically and just processor-wise and gameplay because all of these games, like when I first saw Super Mario Brothers on the on the Super Nintendo, I was like, what is that? That's amazing. I mean, it just looked so unique and it sounded so unique. The gameplay was amazing. Um so yeah, so I definitely dove into the console space really as soon as I got a whiff of it. You know, it was like wow, that you know, it was a completely different world. But it was nice to have the the computer kind of foundation with the ST Amiga uh, Commodore 64. But uh, allow, I think it enabled me to really appreciate how different and how, in my opinion, how much better uh, the consoles were doing games um, because they were treating it a bit more. 
professionally, I guess, you know, actual teams were involved mm. and companies rather than just, you know, a guy or two in their bedroom kind of thing. Um, it was a very different kind of uh, way they treated it, which was, and it showed in the quality of the games, I think. Yeah, I guess looking back, it's 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 always fun to look at the differences between the games being developed in the in the UK versus Japan or versus the United States, and right. and kind of see how I guess what people were shooting for when it came to you know what they wanted to squeeze out of the console. And like for for me, like I didn't realize it at the time, but how many games I played from Rare growing up yeah. on the NES, like like yeah. dozens of games developed by Rare mm-hmm. uh, on the NES and stuff like that. So at, at seventeen, you're you're getting to work really in the industry working with a, a magazine when when was the first i guess you know what was the process from there to you know developing your own games well i i i had always continued kind of uh using deluxe paint and doing kind of 2d pixel art on the st and amiga um and then eventually moved over to the pc computer as well using the same program um and so I'd always been kind of working on my portfolio and kind of knew that that's what I wanted to get into. At that time, I didn't really understand what a game design was truly. It wasn't as quite defined as it is now. And even now it's somewhat nebulous, I suppose. But but then it really almost didn't exist. And I think that's because of, especially in England anyway, um, it was almost like the gaming scene largely at that time especially on the computers, was almost like the indie scene now. You know, it was just a couple of guys doing what they wanted to do. Um, and, and just have, I mean, Sensible Software is a great example of that, actually, with Whizball and all the cool games they did. Um, but uh, anyway, so I was working on my portfolio anyway, um, and I was fortunately, you know, working at the magazine, I was getting to meet loads of developers, you know, who were making games. You know, I'd visit them, go to their studio and, and interview them and do news and stuff. And they'd come to us and show them, you know, show their game work in progress. We'd do previews and stuff. So I actually got to know uh, quite a few people. And then I just heard of um, a company in London uh, called The Sales Curve or Storm. They had a few different names going on. Um, some of the games they were well known for was um, uh, Silkworm and um, uh, Swiv, which was a really nice uh, uh, shoot 'em up uh, with a helicopter and a Jeep kind of uh, duo. Uh, really good game. Actually, it came to the Super Nintendo. I don't know if it came to the Genesis, but it definitely came to the SNES. Um, but originally started off as an Amiga game, I believe. Uh, but I think Silkworm actually was an arcade game originally, but I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, um, and uh, yeah, they were looking for artists, so I just I sent in my disc. Um, and uh, yeah, ended up getting the job there as a pixel artist. So um, that's kind of how that led, um, you know, to that to actually getting into game development. Do you remember the first project that you worked on? Yes, yeah, the very first one was um, an NES game called Rodland. Um, it was a really cool coin-op game by Jellico. Uh, I don't know if it was very big in the States. It was pretty big in Europe. And a uh, really cute, fun little game. And we were doing the NES version. So I just came in and just did a few sprites, a few backgrounds. Um, honestly, my artwork at that time wasn't that great. So it's just it was just nice to be involved in something. Um, so I did a little bit of work on that. And then the first project where we kind of started from scratch, because I just came in uh, while that other project was still uh, had already started in development. The first project we started from scratch was a game called Time Slip um, for the Super Nintendo, and really the team was myself um, doing the art, and then 
uh, uh, Steve Snake, um, an amazing programmer, and he was the programmer, and that, and that was it. That was the team. And then we had Jim Loftus, who was the producer, just trying to, you know, make us do work, work kind of stuff, basically. <laughs> Poor guy. And um, that was it. And we were trying to basically do a Contra type game on the SNES with uh, this. That's not really a license, but a uh, Vic Tokai, who's the publisher. It was kind of their concept, which they kind of gave to us to create, and we just try to make it. So it not. It's not a great. It's not a great game by any stretch of the imagination, but it was fun. I mean, it was great to be thrown in to the deep end like that. Um, I like to say we didn't even have a, a defined designer at that time. It was just that you know, it was art programming, uh, you know, management person. Great, go. That's all you need, right? Um, so design was just kind of one of those things that apparently just was uh, you know assumed to happen <laughs> like magic somehow um because we've got the art we've got the programming we've got the management great that's all we need go um which obviously we know now is is not a good idea but um yeah so, so we, we we made that and um so that was fun that was a fun learning process and actually steve uh, like i said he's an amazing programmer he did start to show me programming because I was interested in learning some of that. And then when he showed, you know, just to clear the screen on the Super Nintendo, just to clear the screen so all memory was all flushed and everything was good and we can start putting code in, was like pages of code. Mm. You know, I'd seen on, you know, basic, you could just, you know, clear screen and boom, there you go, you're done. But in, in assembly language, um, it was a lot more complicated than that because you have to talk to the different chips and tell them to do that and do that to that memory. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's not for me. <laughs> I'll stick. I'll stick to the fun, creative stuff. I'm I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. I'm not going to do the programming. So I, I never have since. So, um, <laughs> so that turned me off pretty good pretty early. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was the first main project. Um, like I said, that was a, lot, a good learning experience. But um, mainly learning what not to do. Well, I, that that credit to that game's box art. I totally rented that as a kid growing oh, you up. Did? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, you walk into you you know you walk into the game rental store and you just you yeah. kind of like look at the box art and I was like, there's a guy you know shooting what? a rifle and you look at the back and you're like, totally right. It looks like it looks like Contra. Yeah, but it looked it had some awesome stuff on the back of the box too. So I <laughs> I remember totally renting that a couple of times. I remember it being kind of hard. It was. It was yeah. pretty hardcore. I mean, and Contra was pretty hardcore. Sure. Um, so, yeah, and back in those days, um, gamers were made for gamers. I mean, you know, there was no casual market. You know, you look at all the games, casual people were not even a consideration. It was gamers, you know. Um, so it was a very different market then. <laughs> yes, it was a very hard game, for sure. Can't have, can't have the people buying the game and then beating it in 35 minutes. So you got to right. make sure that they're putting in some continues and stuff like that. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so, so after time slip, um, you know, what, what kind of projects were you working on after that? Were you doing lots of Super Nintendo stuff? Did you really, did you kind of stay in the thick of things as it went into like the Sega Saturn and 32 and 64 bit stuff? Well, actually, yeah. So I actually only worked there for a year mm -hmm. um, and then I applied at uh, Iguana Entertainment, uh, oh, North yeah. England. And uh, actually with Steve Snake, we both actually rode up on the train together and interviewed at Iguana uh, Iguana UK and we both got the job there um, and uh, like, you know, I was pretty young and inexperienced at the time so um, they were like hey great we'll send you over to the US studio for three months for training and then you come back and you know start for reels and I was like great sounds awesome you know sounds like a three month vacation that's awesome um, and uh, so yeah so when I actually went over, came over to the States is in Northern California uh, in Sunnyvale and that's where Iguana US was. And um, 
Yeah, and and really never we never ever talked about me going back after that, which was kind of weird and awesome. So I ended up just actually just moving to the states, unbeknownst to me, um, is basically what I was doing at that time. Um, so iguana. Uh, it's a pretty amazing company, actually. Iguana, especially in, in, in its heyday, was really, really, really doing some amazing stuff. Um, and they were very much into the thick of doing Genesis and Super Nintendo. And yes, and eventually we would move on to the other platforms as well. So when I moved, when I joined Iguana, uh, I think they were they they had finished. Let me think now. You know what? I think they were finishing Arrow the Acrobat. Um, I think I got one enemy in there, one sprite enemy, like a little spinning ghost or something mm-hmm. in Arrow. I think, I, I don't know, I think so. Um, and I, you know, I did some work for a Super Nintendo game called uh, Side Pocket. It's a, a pool game. Um, and uh, I did some work on Pirates of Dark Water for Genesis. That was a really, really nice game. And it was cool because that company really had their stuff, you know, um, an amazing technical department. Um, really great uh, tools you know the level editor and, and stuff was really really smart very clever very efficient at um at using the tiles and stuff you know um that to make up the levels in the background and stuff which is obviously key in, in the uh, memory constraints that you have on those machines um and uh and they started actually to have start defining a design department, you know, Nigel Cook, um, he was really the only designer, I think, in, officially in the company at that time, but was, you know, creating a, a, a design Bible, if you will, of, of the role. Um, at that time was kind of also uh, combining with project management, which, um, which kind of makes sense, but it was also very challenging to do that um, at the time. And um, anyway, I continued on the, on the art uh, path for quite a while. Uh, eventually um actually that same year that i joined uh the company uprooted and moved down to austin texas which is where i am now um so yeah the entire company uprooted and came down here and uh yeah i I eventually um became a lead artist on zero the kamikaze squirrel which was a super nintendo and genesis game uh we're working with sunsoft at the time, they were really great to work with. Uh, Dave Siller uh, is a great guy, and he was kind of the creative uh, director on, you know, Arrow and Arrow Two and Zero and stuff like that. Um, yeah, then I, you know, I kind of, like I said, I followed the art uh, path for a while. Moved into being assistant art director um, under um, uh, Matt Stubbington, who was the art director at uh, Iguana. Um, and then eventually, I think then as the design role became more defined over time, um, I I felt that that's that was really that was that was what was calling me was get really wanting to get in there and get into the nitty gritty of, of kind of designing stuff. Mm-hmm. So then I kind of moved. Um, like I say, at that time, the it's weird. They like to be a lead designer. You are kind of the lead designer and producer in one role. Call a call a project manager on a project, which is really it, it's in theory a good idea um, because you have a great um, perspective of the entire game. So it gives you a, you're in a good position to be able to do that job. But it's way too much work for one person to do. So it's kind of a weird oxymoron of a position, really. But so I definitely appreciate that there were trying to do that and I, I did take that role on uh, an N64 game uh, called Iggy's Wrecking Balls oh no uh, way alright yeah <laughs> but that was a fun little project um, see this and- is what's I, again I, I didn't have like I didn't have like a history sheet from you but then you're like you're bringing up 
every pretty much every game that you brought up so far, I played. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> that's, that's that's like it's <laughs> no, it's so cool. Like you know, bringing this stuff up, and I still like remember. I think Iggy's even got like a cover in Nintendo Power. Yeah, I, I, but yeah, maybe I'm not sure. It, it was it, it was a funny little game. It was very Nintendo, you know, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. which was tough because it was at a time where games were changing a bit. You know, the PS One was either out or yeah the ps1 was out i think when the n64 was out right yeah so the the landscape was definitely changing you know it had begun that change from core hardcore gamers it's all about gamers to now other non-gamers were now actually being pulled into it mm-hmm. um so it's a very different weird time where i'm as you can tell from our, our recent games a very nintendo centric you know not uh, we just love what they do um, and, and try to emulate them if we can, <laughs> really, if you boil it down to it. Um, so even then, we were definitely trying to do that, which made sense. But it was definitely during a, a, an interesting time where things were changing. So, yeah, we, we did a very Nintendo-centric game, very surreal, very just creative. It didn't really care about reality. It was just about gameplay and making it look and sound nice um, and play nice. Um, so I, it, so it, it resonated well with gamers, but I think really confused people that um, maybe, you know, had bought a PlayStation or, or were maybe brought to the to gaming because of Madden or whatever, you know, like a different reason, which wasn't a gamer game. It was more of a different outside experience. So I think it did pretty well in some in some areas and then really didn't uh, do well in other areas. But it was a really fun project. Um, and actually, my, my business partner at Renegade Kid now, Greg Hargrove, he was the lead artist on Iggy's. Um, so we've been working together for, for a very long time. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I just, I'm trying to think like 98 where I was an N64 kid. I, I had one of those. And again, you get like, uh, the, one of the good and good and bad things about the N64 is that, uh, there wasn't a ton of releases. Like there was tons of stuff coming out on like, PS1. So whenever mm-hmm. a new game hit the shelves, like you were checking it out, you were making sure yeah. that, you know, you're renting that thing. So I, I played like probably, 70% of the Nintendo 64 catalog just from renting games every single weekend. So I was very lucky to check a lot of that stuff out. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love uh, the N64. Um, uh, it's just, I don't know, the, the controller, um, the the physical design of the machine, uh, the cartridges, it was just, it, it still felt like a toy, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, whereas a PS1, which is it was an amazing uh, accomplishment at the time, was very much an entertainment system. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt very different, had a very different vibe. But the N64, I don't know, just, it almost felt like it had a grill, you know, like a really cool old bar. It just had that, those, those lines and the design was just, Really awesome. I mean, just amazing, I think. Still had the um, colorful controllers. You had like six yeah. different colors for the controllers and stuff like that. And even like the games, they still, it still had like a much more colorful palette than some of the stuff mm-hmm. you were seeing, like, you know, like Twisted Metal and stuff like that on PS1, exactly. which were a little bit darker. Yeah. 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 No, it was really, really interesting time. It was fun. I don't think the N64 did as well as Nintendo would have liked. And I think the PlayStation definitely, um, you know, took a huge dent of the market. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was exciting. And, and I, it was just amazing, uh, for me to, I, I really just am very thankful that I got to work on a, on an N64 game because, uh, it was an amazing machine. I really loved it. Yeah. I remember getting the controller for the first time and playing a course Mario 64 mm, yeah. and it just was, it just felt like a dream. It just felt just, re- just so smooth, just completely unique experience. 
in some ways that we haven't even experienced since then. I mean, Mario Galaxy is an amazing game, but still it doesn't quite feel the same. It's not quite as fluid in some ways um, as Mario 64 was. And some of that, of course, is because it was the first time you can't ever replace that or top that um, because, you know, you only experience it once. But, um, man, Mario 64 really nailed it. It was just an incredible experience when you grab that controller for the first time and move Mario around. You're like, whoa, that's different. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, yeah, so it was an exciting time, but um, but yeah, no, it was fun. So, anyway, so uh, yeah, eventually, so I, 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 pre- I pretty much stuck, I think, with the design path after that, um, after that project, because um, design was uh, really the the fun the fun challenge. And but now I, I do get to do artwork as well, still, which is great. But for many years, I, I didn't do any artwork because um, I was just focused purely on game design, which was very very gratifying and very fun to, to to follow that path for a while let's let's talk a little bit uh about renegade kid in the company and this is partly you know super fascinating for me just from doing the research before the interview to see what you guys have have worked on and what you produced and uh one of the games that i got on my nintendo ds was what your first game i believe it was uh dimension of the ward uh-huh yeah and a little awesome. bit of a contrast from Super Mario sixty four and Iggy's yeah. Wrecking Ball. So yes, definitely. So, so so how did you how did you you know go from you know making colorful games to something that was a little bit darker? <laughs> um, you know, at the time, and still am actually, I'm a huge fan of Silent Hill two. Mm, yeah, really amazing game on multiple levels. Specifically, that game is just so impressive. Um, and um, you know, Resident Evil, of course. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we were starting the company. It was 2007, I guess, is when we when we, we released our first game uh, with Dementium Award. And so we'd started that year or slightly before that, I guess, in 2006, actually started to make it. Um, so, you know, the situation we're at was, um, you know, because, you know, I'd, I'd come from acclaim. So it was very, it, you always have to think of the market. You know, you have to think of how do we make a game that anyone will care about and actually try and make money out of it. So, and unfortunately, that doesn't always mean just make a good game. It it means you have to think of the market and it, it, do people want it? <laughs> will people notice it? Will people care? Um, you know, so, you know, you have to think of those things. So for me, very early on, I was like, okay, I think what we need to do is try and what I coined as the three P's where you have to please the player, of course, uh, the press and the publisher, because the publisher is what, who's going to give you money to make this game. So you have to make them feel like they're going to make money out of this thing or they're not going to give us money. So, and you know, in the press, of course you want to please them and they are a different, and all three of those audiences are very different from each other because they all have a different perspective and a different need and, um, of, of the games. So, so if we could please those three those three P's, then we'd have a, a decent fighting chance at maybe you know making some money and, and continuing to make games. So that was so early on. So that's kind of where and, and Dementium doing a survival horror game on the DS, even at that time and, and now even seems really like a, a ridiculous idea. But it made sense. It was kind of like you know there's not really. I mean, Resident Evil was on the DS, but it, it you know it it wasn't. It wasn't really that scary. And it wasn't you know, new. It, it, it wasn't. It was something people probably had played it, before. And it was old. That's yeah. true. Yeah, it was a port. Um, and it, it, it definitely showed its age a little bit. It didn't really take advantage of the DS. It was a little clunky. Um, so, um, 
so we're like, you know, we had some experience with the first person stuff, you know, because we worked a little bit on Turok, um, you know, on, on the N64. I worked on some of the multiplayer levels uh, for Turok too. Um, so, um, so we kind of, I know we knew that the DS was a similar kind of power than the N64. So we kind of knew that we could pull off something like, you know, Turok, for example, on the on the DS. No one was really doing that. Obviously, Metroid Hunters was out mm-hmm. um, and visually amazing uh, gameplay, maybe not so much, but definitely an amazing technical achievement and graphical achievement. Um for the hardware anyway so we're like hey let's you know if we did us you know a really bloody you know m-rated survival horror game on the ds it will definitely get noticed <laughs> for sure um and if we do a half decent job maybe people will actually enjoy it you know um if it's a, if it's an okay game you know so if we can get people to notice it and we do a good job then we have a good chance so we thought those two things would, would be accomplished by doing a survival horror game on the ds and the nice thing was it was our first game we had just stepped out. We just left a paying job <laughs> uh, to start our own company. So we were thinking, and at that time, you know, the Austin market was pretty healthy. So we were thinking, well, you know, if we make a game and it crash and burns and no one cares, then no worries. We'll go and get another job, you know, if it doesn't work out. Um, but let's at least go down in flames if we're really going to try it, you know, and have fun with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we thought, we'd, you know, give it a shot. We, we'd, ne- we'd never made a game like that really before. But we thought we could, you know, at least give it a try. Um, well, and then it totally um, stood out too, because I, as someone, I had like maybe two or three games from from my DS at the time. But then I remember it was the One Up Show did a feature on it, um, mm, and right. and that that sold me on the game uh, immediately because uh, they also mentioned, uh, you know, having to put on your headphones and playing through the game and having it scare the crap at you. I'm like, I, I need to, I need to see this. Can a, can a DS <laughs> game on whatever it is, like a four inch screen, can that really, right. can that really scare me? And like, I had moments where I, I would wait at night and I would play it in the dark and I could only play like 30 minutes at a time because I just, I, it had with the sound effects and, you know, you had like a flashlight and stuff like that. So you could kind of look around, but you just mm-hmm. didn't always know what was going to be behind you. So, yeah. um, you know, you guys definitely, pulled it off and obviously it did it did well enough where you made a, a sequel you made a second one too yes absolutely yeah well thanks for saying that man yeah i mean we, we definitely really focused on the atmosphere i mean for me uh i like to try and especially if we're doing something new uh new for us we try to research the medium and and see how can we be the most effective at that um to try and learn from other people you know other people have done a great job at it let's try and learn from them and then try and put our spin on that mm-hmm. so for me it was like we definitely have to nail the atmosphere that's because that's what's going to hold you throughout the entire experience you know if you can nail that in the first room that effort will carry throughout the entire game so it's a lot of it's it's worth doing that you know it's a, it's a good investment uh development wise to to get the atmosphere right so we definitely focused on that a lot with the lightning and the thunder outside mm. uh, obviously the darkness the flashlight that was the first thing like can we do a flashlight on the ds you know and that was our first thing and, and uh, bob ives who we're also still working with um, is the programmer who single-handedly programmed that game and did all of the Max plugins for us to do the editor and stuff, and he did everything himself. Um, did an amazing job. Um, he, we got the flashlight working, you know, pretty early on, and we're like, oh wow, okay, that yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> this is, I think this is going to work, you know. Um, and actually, at first, I I thought I would go with uh, no music in the game and only sound effects. So my, my focus up front was really on the on the sound effects and making sure there were things in the environment that would make sounds mm-hmm. uh, to make it interesting because that would be the soundtrack. Uh, obviously, later, I, I you know uh, I 
just tried putting music in there just to see and, and in my mind I was like oh yeah that that it totally improved it so yes we will have music in the game but I just thought I would try the audio uh, first and I'm glad I did because that, that that means that we put an emphasis on the sound effects um, so they had they stood on their own and then if you combine that with music it's like oh yeah great now the audio really has the attention that it really deserves and, and for a survival horror game it's really important um, so, so from you know from crackling old speakers to to enemies yeah. that are around the corner <laughs> it really just puts in if you wear headphones you're like you can this the, 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 the stereo placement of the of the audio mm-hmm. is it works it feels incredible i mean you and for me like the tiny screen because you're holding it so close to your face you know it's really the equivalent of a 50 inch screen in front of you in your living room yeah. because you know it really feels the same when you if you allow yourself to be in the moment it, it, it can be quite effective No, it sold pretty well. I mean, we, we teamed up with with Gamecock um, to publish it. So, so just to rewind a little bit, so we started making the game just on our own dime. You know, we had no publisher, we had no investment. Greg and I, like I said, left you know uh, decent paying jobs. Uh, we were actually working with Kings Isle. Uh, I was the producer, and Greg was the art director on um, uh, Wizard One Hundred One. Uh, for, for King's Isle so we were working on that everything was going great had no good reason to leave <laughs> and uh, but we wanted to start our own company we've been talking about it for years um, so we actually did uh, work for hire contract work during the day once we had left um, for a toy company weirdly enough um, uh, doing pixel art work strangely uh, little two color pixel art work for these little kind of little games that you would they buy in Target at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, one of them was this little, um, uh, almost like a, a Tamagotchi type thing, I suppose, um, uh, uh, aimed towards girls um, where you'd have this uh, mother uh, figure, I guess, but very cartoony and cute and cool looking, you know, walking around the house, you know, and looking after the baby and stuff like that. But in a really basic, simplified way, quite quite nicely designed. Um, I can't remember what they were called now. Um but they were quite popular at the time. There's quite a, quite a few of them. Anyway, we did pixel artwork for stuff like that. There's like a little hamster version of it and all kinds of really strange, obscure things. But I was very fortunate. You know, I felt very fortunate that we, I, I had, you know, got in contact with this person. We had a pretty decent paying, you know, gig going on. Both Greg and I would both do it during the day, uh, work on an hourly basis, you know, turning our sheets kind of thing. Very old school union kind of style. Um, and then at night we'd work on Dementium. And then we'd pool our money together to then pay for Bob, who's programming uh, the game, who actually was located and still is over in Spain, in Madrid. He's an English guy who lives in Madrid. So that's kind of how we made Dimension, which is pretty insane, really. Um, you know, we, we didn't have any dev kits. We just used the, um, you know, those little 
cards you could burn games for and obviously mo most people would use them for pirating games but we used it to develop the game um so we would make you know he would generate the rom and then put it on the little card and play it on an actual ds at the time so very very shoestring very uh, technically not i guess you know to the rules um kind of development style but we weren't you know we weren't taking advantage of anyone we were just making it happen so we didn't feel like we were doing anything bad because we, we really weren't but but not really the official way you're supposed to be making a, a game for nintendo at that time um obviously i can tell them that now but i would have told them that at the time probably uh, <laughs> slapped our wrists i've done something but uh <laughs> whatever um but that was the way we had to do it you know um so anyways we did that for a good three to six months uh to the point where we had a really nice playable and we started to shop it around i went to gdc i didn't have a ticket to get in but i just kind of went in the lobby and met people and <laughs> tried to show them the game and stuff and um yeah, and eventually, funnily enough, we found actually a publisher who was in our same town, Gamecock, who was in Austin as well, who was at the time. And, uh, and yeah, I remember actually, uh, you know, went to dinner one evening uh, to a Mexican restaurant just down the road, and I got a call from uh, Tim Hess, who was the producer at the time at, uh, at Gamecock, saying, yeah, we want to... We want to publish your game, and I'm like, really? Because <laughs> we'd, you know, we'd been like, you know, cold calling and try, trying to get this game, you know, and it, you know, we were wondering that, well, maybe people don't think it's going to sell. You know, it's a big risk. You know, survival horror, M-rated game on Nintendo's kiddie handheld console. Yeah, and we're like, maybe people just don't want to take the risk to do that. But of course, Gamecock knowing them well actually that's you know, I was going to say knowing them of course they would but we actually had a, a, two other offers actually from other publishers so so I think people were like yeah maybe this is worth it you know um, but Gamecock we really just loved uh, the people and their attitude and, and, I, and I definitely think that helped um the presentation of, of, of the game it really fit the company um you know there's renegade kid there's gamecock there's dementium it was just the trifecta i think of attitude from the three different you know the two different companies in the game was just it just made sense it, it's like yeah these different company logos that game that all makes sense there's a there's a common theme a common attitude here of playful you know rascals doing something and trying to release it and i think hopefully some of that came through and, and gamecock did a really good job of of PR and getting the game out there. And we did a, you know, a, a press tour and stuff showing the game off. So it was exciting. It was fun. It was a really exciting time. Um, and yeah, it did pretty well. It really did. It sold pretty well. We got it over in Europe. We got it in, in Japan. Um, got some good scores. Um, you know, it sold pretty well. And then we actually then moved on to making moon, uh, for the DS with, uh, Mastiff. Um, who actually were interested in doing Dementium with us originally, but we actually ended up going Gamecock. So they were still still interested after we'd finished uh, Dementium. So that was great. So we made Moon with them. Um, and then at the end of that, we then actually were partnering up again with, with, um, with Gamecock to actually do a Wii game called The Son of the Dragon, which actually never ended up seeing the light of day, but we had signed a contract with them. It was going to happen, and um, it's a pretty decent budget, and we were going to get serious and get an office space and do the whole thing. And um, but then, unfortunately, uh, I think there was some the financial market was really crashing at that time, yeah. um, and that really affected Gamecock and their investors started pulling out, not because of Gamecock necessarily, um, but because of just everything. Um, 
And um, yeah, they ended up getting bought by a Gamecock ended up getting bought by South Peak. Um, and then South Peak didn't want to do the Wii game. Probably a smart move, honestly, because to do an action hardcore game for the Wii at that time in that market is probably not a good idea. I think at that time the Wii market was obviously let's put a casual game on the shelf of you know Walmart for twenty bucks. Mm-hmm. And it will do great. And that's really where the market was at at that time and obviously continued that way for a long time until they destroyed everyone's opinion of, <laughs> of that market. Um, but uh, So it was probably a smart move, but it was a real bummer for us, of course, because we'd started making the game and stuff. And so they owed us money and uh, there's a whole ugly situation. But the good thing that came out of that, the phoenix that rose from from that fire was was uh, Dementium 2. They, they said, hey, let's do Dementium 2. And we're like, oh, okay, great. And they, 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 you know, they paid a, a good budget. Uh, for it so we actually got a number of uh, a decent team it was a good effort um, so Dementium 2 is um, yeah something I'm very proud of it's definitely in my mind a, a vast improvement on on uh, on Dementium and, and definitely um, uh, uh, took advantage of the fact that we'd made Moon in between the games um, so we got to kind of take advantage of what we'd learned from developing that as well so Dementium 2 I think is really uh, yeah, I'm very proud of that game. That really turned out really nice. So that was great. It was really nice to do three first-person shooters, you know, on the DS. How who who'd have thought that would happen uh, from a brand new developer? You know, pretty crazy. Well, the the cool thing is for for people that are listening to this and you you did miss the the the, the Dementium games. Um, you guys are actually putting them out on the 3DS as well, right? Yeah, no, really excited about that. Um, how, yeah, how did that come together? And, you, and I mean, also, I guess it's tied up with the news of, uh, you know, a further sequel. Right, we definitely want to do a Dementium 3. I mean, we've, I mean, we've wanted to do that for a long time. But, uh, uh, yeah, for us, it's... Um, uh, yeah, you know, we just... We, we've wanted to get it back for a long time. We've always owned the IP. Mm-hmm. Um, but, oh, cool. but the publishing... Um, contract we had was you know they had you know first right refusal for for sequels um and that's always difficult because that means even if they don't want if the publisher doesn't want to do it i mean you know uh, pitch it to someone else um you know and then someone else says yeah we want to do that that's great um the problem is then we legally have to then take it back to the original publisher because they have last right of refusal or first right of refusal whatever they have they can say okay great we'll match that we'll go ahead and do that so so that means not many publishers really want to bother going through the rigmarole of going yes we want to do it oh now the original publisher wants to do it great whatever um, so yeah so that means that's why a, a, you know a, a sequel never happened because of that kind of strange situation obviously South Peak didn't really not that they didn't want to do a sequel um, is they weren't in the situation to do it obviously I mean South Peak obviously really isn't even alive anymore well it kind of is but not really um, so for multiple reasons they didn't want to uh, do sequels or couldn't do sequels um so anyway yes we got it back which is great so yeah our first um our first thought is well great let's let's you know let's enhance it let's make it look uh better let's take advantage of the 3ds hardware and um yeah and get it on the eShop, you know because i think um moon uh was received pretty well uh with, with a similar treatment uh 
Um, I think the mistake we made with Moon Chronicles and the and the 3DS um, was the episodic nature. We thought we would try that. You know, we thought it'd be worth you know giving that a shot. And I think if we had delivered the uh, subsequent episodes at a decent rate, then it, it probably maybe could have done okay, uh, or could have been received better, I should say. Um, but we weren't, weren't able to fulfill that, uh, unfortunately. Um, so I think the episodic approach. Uh, it's not something we'll jump into again any, anytime soon, just because it is—it's a tough thing to to support, and then I think the then the user kind of gets a bit um, frustrated. You know, if they've bought the first episode, they're waiting for the second, and months later it's still not there. You know that sucks. So um, so anyways, with Dimension, you know, we're definitely going to not do that. <laughs> we're just going to just do the whole game and then just release it as, as a whole game. So. Um, so yeah, so funnily enough, you know, get, you know, everything is is in cycles. I guess our first um, our first challenge with Dementium on the 3DS is the flashlight again. Um, <laughs> the flashlight on uh, on the DS was awesome, um, but it was very fake. You know, it was very crude. It was like cone kind of cut out of blackness. It was very much an effect, which for the DS was that's great. But the 3DS, you, you know, we can't we can't do that. People wouldn't accept it, uh, especially with amazing games like Resident Evil again uh, on the 3DS, which they've done. This that game is amazing on the 3DS. It really is a visual treat. Um, anyway, so yeah, first uh, first order of the day was like, all right, let's. Let's try and pull off a, a, a realistic-looking flashlight, which we have, thankfully. So that, that's a, that's a relief, um, and it looks really nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a, most people will probably just take it for granted. Like, yeah, great, looks like a flashlight, and that that's good. That's great. That's exactly what they should think. Um, but that's definitely been a challenge to try and get a realistic-looking flashlight on the 3DS because for us, we're trying to make it also run at 60 frames a second with 3D on um, because it really improves the gameplay experience just as we did with the DS. You know, that's they run at 60 frames a second. So we can't, um, we, don't, we don't want to drop that. You know, we don't want to lose that experience because it does make it much more fluid and more enjoyable. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, yeah, and it, it's exciting. So now uh, Greg, um, uh, you know, who's our director at, at Renegade Kid, he, you know, he's focusing on, you know, making it look nicer, you know, whether that means higher res textures, whether we can put detail maps in certain places or bump maps, um, you know, whether we can, we can add more polygons, you know, like the radiator on, on the wall, for example. I'm pretty sure it's a box, you know, I think on the DS uh, textured to look like it has little ridges along the top, you know, stuff like that. Now we'll actually have, you know, obviously geometry for those ridges and stuff like that. So we're definitely going to, uh, spend a little bit, um, quite a bit of time actually trying to do these little details uh, throughout the game to, um, you know, so it looks like a real up-res, like an enhanced version of the, of the original game. So it looks like, you know, it's definitely taking advantage of the 3DS. Um, so so that's what Greg's working on right now, which is really exciting. It looks, it's looking really, really nice. Um and uh, it's really neat. It's weird, like jumping into these familiar corridors, now being able to judge them in 3D depth for the first time ever. It's like, oh, weird. You know, it's really, really neat. It's really strange. You know, coming back to somewhere that you're familiar with, but now seeing it from a different perspective. It's it's really really cool. Um, and then from a gameplay perspective, there's a quite a few things that I want to try and improve, uh, such as the save the save points, you know, um, throughout the game to make it a little less brutal than the first one was. Um, and the respawning enemies, I think it was a little bit over the top on the first one. So, so addressing stuff, stuff like that. So it will make it, um, I think, a bit more uh, palatable for today's players um but also will make it a little bit easier so gonna probably crank up the difficulty have a few have a few different um 
difficulty settings you can choose from um, if you want something that's got you know a bit more of a challenge you know because those changes will make it a little bit easier than the original very cool well, definitely uh when it hits the eShop, make sure to check those out just because they're i mean you look at the the 3ds now it, that is kind of a hole that's there again yeah, uh, yeah no, good right so, so you're kind of filling it up again and i mean even if I'm kind of like looking at my my 3ds library. I'm like maybe there, there's a couple of Resident Evil games, but there's a really no like survival horror games or horror games at all. So um, that's that's awesome that you guys are doing it. And like alongside that, um, you guys are really well known for. I, I guess it would like retro inspired games. Um, I mean, obviously, right. uh, Mutant Muds is, is a huge game, and um, I think the the first time that that I played that was actually on the PlayStation Vita. Um, oh, when cool! It, when it hit there, yeah. Well, I'm, I, I like my 3ds, but I love my PlayStation Vita because I have an irrational yeah. love for that hardware. But um, the screen is beautiful in that thing. Exactly, it's just amazing. Exactly, God, incredible. Yeah. Um, so, so you now for 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 you guys. Um, I guess alongside of, I mean, on the DS, you were making lots of first-person games, but then when you made that jump to the 3DS, um, it seems like you you kind of wanted to go back to more of a retro-inspired 2D action platformer look. Um, so, so what what inspired you to do that? Why why go from you know first-person games back to you know making 2D games? Well, really, I mean, like I said before, like when I with the games on the DS it was very much about the three Ps, you know, trying to please those audiences to try and make something that hopefully would be somewhat successful to allow us to continue to do it. Um, and then as soon as the eShop came along, um, I felt like I didn't have to worry about that quite so much because, well, and that's what, exactly what MUDS is, is um, throwing away, well, obviously not the player. <laughs> Always have to worry about the player, even though I entertain the player so they can have fun with it. Um, but really kind of threw away definitely the publisher one because we were just going to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that really changes everything um, because then whether it makes money or not is then our decision rather than we know we have to convince a publisher that it's going to make money. Um, then it's up to us if we think it's going to make money or even if we care if it makes money, which is a completely different mindset, which is really exciting to be in that position. So, and at the time, um, you know, we weren't assuming that suddenly our business model was going to change from retail to doing all of our own games on 3DS eShop. We didn't, that was not in our mind at all. It was like, you know, we'll continue what we've been doing always, which is, you know, cold calling publishers, convincing them to give us money to make a game for the hardware, get the games on the, you know, on the shelves. Um, but in the meantime, hey, there's this eShop thing. Cool. Let's make a game for that where we don't care what anyone thinks and just make something for fun. Um, and, that, and that's where MUDs came from. Um, and obviously, you know, 2D is a lot more um, quicker um, and less uh, technically um, uh, challenging to create um, the assets for. I mean, certainly not easier from a game design perspective, but just from a, a time and effort um, and te technical perspective, it can be easier um, or less time consuming, I should say. Um, so, uh, yes, it was a good fit. You know, it was me and Matthew, Matthew Gambrell, who's another programmer we work with, who does all of our 2D stuff, uh, who's very, very talented. Um, and, um, yeah, it was just us working on that, uh, kind of on the side. I think at the time we were probably working on face races for the, for the 3DS, maybe planet crashes. And I, I, I lose track of <laughs> where the games were happening, but we were definitely working on stuff. Um, we're getting paid to do it by someone, um, during the day. That was our day job. And then in the evenings, very similar, I guess, 
to how Dementium was born. In the evenings, we you know we would work on on mutant muds. Well, and it was you're really- Mega Man too, man. You were like working, right, doing exactly. your regular work at Capcom during the day and work on Mega Man two at night. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really just a labor of love, and it was very much going back to. Again, like I mentioned earlier, that moment I saw Super Mario World on the SNES, I was like, wow, that was really just such a special game. You know, just, just looking at the title screen, not even playing it, you're like, wow, that's so different. It's so cool looking. It's just so creative and so inviting. Um, and that and that was very much one of the inspirations for, for MUDs was that basic feeling. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a slew of other inspirations that went into MUDs, um, you know, because 20 years later, you know, other games have been played uh, since since uh, Super Mario World. But, um, uh, yes, it really was just a fun game. Didn't really have much expectations as far as sales or anything. Um, you know, once obviously you make a good game that people liked and hopefully, I think it, nowadays it's more about if you make a game that players like, chances are press will like it too. I think there used to be more of a divide between press and players, but I think uh, they're a little bit closer now because so many of the press are players um, because they have websites and they have their own websites. Whereas back in the day, that wasn't the case. There were professional writers that worked at magazines. So there's a very different mindset, I think. Whereas now it's a lot different. I think the internet has obviously created a different breed of, of, of journalists on their website, which I think is a good thing because they are enthusiastic. <laughs> They're not cynical. Yeah, um, totally. You know, They play a game because they love it. And if they love it, they don't mind telling the world about it rather than hmm, what's wrong with this game, you know, kind of the, uh, approach, which is not really helping anyone um in my opinion so um uh yeah so that that's that's where mods came from so it was a real uh surprise delight joy amazing thing when actually it, it, it sold pretty well obviously nintendo i mean i have to send a huge thanks to them they really helped promote the game you know they really at that time it was a really good timing for us uh, it was january 2012 so literally uh was the year so three years ago <laughs> like what year are we in uh yeah i think now i mean it's january 1st so um yeah so three years ago wow that's crazy um and uh, there wasn't um so you know the landscape was different then on the e-shop there were no retail games available on the e-shop you could not buy anything that was available in the stores uh, on the e-shop at all it was only e-shop games um and uh, Nintendo were very much, it was a, they had a, the, the business, their business setup at that time was very different than it is now. Uh, at that time, they had control over the pricing, over the release date, over everything. I mean, it wasn't like it is now where they're just providing a service to us, basically like like everyone else is now, like Steam and, and iOS and so on, mm-hmm. uh, which is how Nintendo is now uh, for the eShop. But back then it was very different because they hadn't transitioned to the modern digital shop uh, business uh, setup. So it was a very different world there. So really, I think for them, they maybe felt a, 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 slight, a larger obligation to invest in anything that was in the eShop because they were kind of more, had a more ownership over it, you know? Um, and there wasn't many games. You know, VVVV was out. Uh, I think Cave Story was out. Um, there was Mighty Switch Force, the first one was out at that time. Uh, Pushmo was out around that time. Um, it was really uh, pretty much, a, I mean, very much, in my opinion, a kind of a nice little golden age of, of eShop. It was like, wow, wow, wow. Totally. All of these amazing games for like under 10 bucks. What? And it was like all on the 3DS. It was like, what? It was incredible. Um, and then soon after that, there was, you know, uh, Rolling Western and um, uh, Sakurai Samurai, whatever it's called. No, it's not the right name, but you know what I mean? That, well, that game. But there, there was a bunch of amazing games around that time. 
and thankfully, um, you know, mods came along kind of in the middle of that. And, uh, yeah, and like I said, it came out in January and it did really well. It was really incredible. So it really changed, um, our, my, our perception of, of, of business and how we were going to try and make money making games. And obviously, um, being, you know, I think anyone who's creative is is largely, um, no matter how logical they try to be, they're largely emotionally driven. So, you know, to have something that you made for fun actually make money is like, oh, what? I don't have to worry about what publishers think anymore? Huh. Okay. Um, so that was pretty enlightening. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that really definitely changed our perspective. And, um we've done some, you know, some work for hire, some retail stuff, you know, since then. Um, but you know, we definitely, that's our focus now is to try and make independent games ourselves, you know, release them through the digital channels and try and make money that way because it's just so much more, uh, fruitful, you know, it's just so much more satisfying to make something you want to make and, and you do the PR and you do the whole thing, uh, about the game. Um, you know, and then you get money back directly for the effort to then put back into making more games games is, is, is pretty amazing um so yeah so it was a, it was an amazing moment when uh, mods came out and, and and did pretty well yeah again you can you can totally grab that on uh vita and, and 3ds and steam uh so you can yeah much anything that you have is probably going to uh going to play now which is another awesome part about having this digital the the digital download stuff going on um we're getting towards an hour, so I want to make sure we talk about uh, Zero Drifter um, okay. because this is this is one of the the newest releases from from you guys, and uh, right now on the uh, 3ds eShop, and um, I've been playing it, and there is an initial bump you have to get over once you get through <laughs> that, you get that understanding of of how to play the game. Like right. immediately, I think it was after the second boss, like what when I was able to. Um, like go into the background of the game is like, that's when it like totally clicked with me and I was able to get, you know, health pickups, get, uh, you know, gun pickups and stuff like that, um, where it really clicked. And, um, obviously there, it seems to be some, some inspiration from, you know, Metroid type games. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious, like what, what was, you know, like, how did this project come about and what were your goals when you, when you started working on it? Um, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird project. Actually, I wrote a pretty lengthy postmortem of, of, uh, the development of this game on, uh, on Gama Sutra. So I actually, I have, so I have, I have the answer to the question pretty well formed in my mind. Um, cause I've had to think about it a lot recently, but it, it, it's a little strange. It's not quite as glamorous as I would like. I mean, it, there's definitely a business side behind taking that direction. Um, not thankfully not in a, not in a negative and not in a way that compromised uh, any of the games, which is good. Um, but definitely it was more of a business kind of, of, of a decision that kind of led us this way. Um, you know, this time last year, Zero Drifter didn't exist, you know, in my mind, in, in any way, it just did not exist at all. Um, you know, and we were starting the year, I think we we're probably working on Treasure Notes. Uh, we we're working on Moon Chronicles for the 3DS, you know, and, and, um, and in April of last year, you know, we did a Kickstarter campaign for Colt County uh, that, that failed miserably. <laughs> and um, and uh, Moon Chronicles on the 3DS came out in May um, of last year. So at that time, we were like, okay, obviously, I mean, 
really anyone who does a Kickstarter obviously is needing money, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why they're doing a Kickstarter. So we did that in the hope of getting something rolling and that didn't work out. Um, you know, and like I say, Moon just came out. So, and I'd done a, a D-Make uh, mock-up of what a D-Make of Moon Chronicles would look like in 2D kind of form. Um, kind of around that time or earlier in March, maybe or last year. And, um, and, you know, and I thought it was pretty cool. I've always liked the idea of things like that, like Dark Void Zero and stuff like that. I really like those kind of things. Um, so I did a little mock-up, and it turned out pretty cool. And, and then I just kind of left it, you know, and got on with other stuff. Um, and then it rolled around to um, kind of, you know, May kind of time, and we didn't have much going on. We were working on, like, say, Treasure Notes, but we were kind of in a position where we had to get something released as soon as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and Treasure Notes didn't, it wasn't, it, I had kind of expanded the scope of the game um, to make it, you know, everything that I wanted it to be. And that didn't fit in being able to release this year, or last year, I should say, 2014. Um, so so we kind of came to a crossroads where I was like, well, do we do we reduce the scope of Treasure Notes um, and, and finish that and just get it out um, in 2014? Or do we not do that and do we delay it and then do something else instead that can fit in a shorter amount of time? So obviously we went with the, lat the latter there and, um, and we went through a few different ideas to figure out what that game could be. We even did a, a fun little kind of basic uh, action RPG type thing, which was working out quite nice actually. Um, but, um, but in the end, didn't, I don't know, it just didn't kind of feel quite right because um, we knew we only had a few months to work on it. So, and if it wasn't feeling quite right, then, um, yeah, chances are that's not going to end up very well. So we kind of axed that pretty quickly after about three or four weeks of pouring quite a lot of effort into it. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm hopeful that we pick that up again someday because it did show a lot of promise. Um, but, and then and then the idea of, of the mock-up that I did for uh, the D-Make of Moon Chronicles popped up into my mind. And that in combination with the fact that Nintendo hadn't released a Metroid, <laughs> you know, a 2D Metroid on anything for many years. People have been demanding was, one for years. I know. I mean, me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm right there, man. I'm like, where is it? I want it. You know, I, I, the last 2D one that I, I thoroughly enjoyed was definitely Zero Mission, you know, on, on the GBA. It was an amazing game. They did such a good job of that. Uh, and all of them, I mean, Fusion, I mean, all of them, are, all of the 2D ones are great. Um, the Game Boy one's a little tricky, though, I'm not sure. That one's definitely probably the the lowest one on my list, but still a great game, though. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was like, all right, cool, well, let's see if we can, you know, <laughs> do a Metroidvania game. And at that time, it was like we gave ourselves about three months um, to get it done. And uh, I just jumped into it, just got it going. And uh, quickly, you know, discovered that yeah no it's not going to get done in three months um but in the end it did end up taking about five months which still is not not bad um and uh it really it's interesting now looking back at it and the fact that that i think it it, it turned out pretty good I, I'm, I'm i'm proud of it i like it i think it's a pretty faithful pretty decent metroidvania type of game um despite the time i think you know standing on its own um, you know, as a you know, ten dollar game that you can download and and have a lot of uh, a lot of that Metroid feeling, that fun kind of going through it. I'm really proud of it. I think it turned out really great. But then when I take into consideration that we did it in five months, and it was really me and Matthew doing most of the work, and then we had two other kind of part time people helping out here and there. Um, you know, I, I really can't believe we did it. Honestly, I don't know how we pulled that off. But I think it's a testament to 
the reason we didn't do the RPG is it wasn't quite feeling right. And then as soon as the Metroidvania idea came up, it felt very right. And we were very excited. I was very excited. I was like, yeah, I've been wanting to do a Metroidvania game forever. I've done many designs and many ideas, many thoughts about that genre, but never actually really done a game wholeheartedly in that direction. I mean, Mutant Mods has elements of that, that you have to get the power up to go back to levels, to get to the secret door, to get to a thingy. So it has some of that, those elements in Mutant Mods, but, um, but not wholeheartedly. So to dive into that, um, yeah, I was super excited. So and I think that definitely um, that, that energy and that feeling um, you know, fueled myself and definitely Matthew for those five months. You know, we worked our asses off, you know, but it didn't feel like a slog. It didn't feel like someone was making us work over time. It just, it was a pure joy. It was very similar to me and Muds in that way. You know, we worked our asses off on that game. Um, but it was, yeah, I loved it. I loved every second of it. And the same thing with Zero Drifter. It was an absolute joy. For me, it, it's like playing a game. It's like, how do we, how do we solve this puzzle? How do we make this game good? And how do we make it deliver and how do we make it hit the notes we want it to hit that we experience from that genre when we play it? How do we uh, how do we capture that? How do we do that? How do we deliver that? Um, so it's a fun challenge. And I feel like we, we pulled it off pretty good. Um, and yeah, so it was fun, man. But it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a shotgun project. It was pretty crazy. So, you know, um, it worked out. We we just squeaked it in there. We just got it in before the before the year ended on both 3ds and Steam, which was great that we got two two platforms out there. Um, so yeah, anyway, so that that's how it came about, man. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny you say that too because uh, not only I, you know I've been playing, I've been really enjoying it. And a lot of people that have been you know talking on whether it's like NeoGAF or Twitter, people are really enjoying it. It's, it is totally like what you said. It was right game at the right time. And even um, Greg Stewart, uh, who's on the show a lot, and of course of the, the Player One podcast, that was one of his games of the year. Um, oh, wow. He, he, really, awesome. he really loved it, and it really clicked with him. And uh, I hope you guys keep – I like that thinking of just like what – what is out there that people want? You know, if Nintendo's not going to do it, we'll do it, and we'll right. you know, we'll make those right. people happy. And you know, Nintendo obviously has. I, I think Nintendo has had the strongest year out of anyone by far uh, when it comes to to putting out games. But um, it's awesome to have people that that you know like the Nintendo style, like what they do um, to to make games for for people like me that you know want you know want that style of game because it's. It is just it's really refreshing and sometimes it just clicks with you when it's the the right game at the at the right time. So I think you guys definitely hit it and did your your own spin on it too. Like you you implemented some stuff that uh, you won't see in other games. There's some really cool stuff in terms of the mechanics and things like that and how like the boss battles change from uh, you know every time that you see that boss how they the the battles evolve and, and stuff like that and how you have to like modify your weapons. There's like a lot of stuff going on um, for for when you if you just like look at a screenshot and you're like yeah it looks like an NES game. No, there's like a lot more mechanics than what you would expect from an nes game but uh you know again it's for for the audience that's listening to this if you like old games and you like that retro style this is a game you should um definitely check out so is it is it out it's obviously it's out in the states is it out in in europe as well no only the u.s only north america right now okay um yeah so if you sorry if you're in north america go go grab it i think it's uh it's ten dollars and 9.99 uh-huh yeah awesome right. um well, yeah. I mean, before before we wrap up, there was one really great question that I got from from uh, uh, the audience. I think it was from uh, Twitter. Yeah, it was from uh, Addison, who wanted to know uh, if if one of your games could be a pack in with any system ever, 
which would it be? So if you if you were going to have to make that pack in game that was going to sell a system, uh, I guess what which of your games would you go with, and for what system? Gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, for me personally, it would definitely be a toss up between probably Dimensium Two and Mutant Muds. Um, you know, Dimensium Two DS, Mutant Muds for 3DS. It'd definitely be a toss up between those two. You know, because I think they both do a pretty good job of showing off what the hardware can do to a yeah. certain degree. I um, mean, not in the same respects that a Mario game uh, typically does, which shows off every <laughs> every aspect of of the hardware. Um, but I think both of them do a pretty good job of that. You know, really imagining, you know, uh, you know, a nice black box, you know, with a, D, uh, a DS light or even a DSi in there with, uh, you know, a maturated Dementium 2 in there would be pretty hilarious. You know, the kind of uh, the mature gamer edition um, would be pretty, <laughs> pretty awesome to see that um, out there. But, um, yeah, I think both of those would, would, I think would work equally pretty well. I think I think mods, you know, on on a, on the 3DS in in a packing would be amazing, you know, hmm. um, because it, it's so Nintendo. It's just so colorful and it, it just sits right next to Mario and all the rest of it and doesn't look out of place, you know. And I think uh, that would be incredible. And the, the fact that it, that's what's so interesting about um, 2D games that have 3D depth is in in many respects it's 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 the most effective way of, of of doing that, of taking advantage of the 3D depth. And I think the reason for that is the very distinct layers of depth. You know, there's, there's, you know, with a 3D game, like, you know, Super Mario 3D Land, which is an amazing game, and I love it, um, when you have that granular effect of 3D, where, you know, the entire world, every pixel, everything you're seeing is in 3D depth, it quickly wears off. You know, you, you don't quite appreciate it or see it after a few minutes because it's almost like reality. It's just, yeah. It's just seeing the world in 3D depth, like we do. Um, but with a 2D game, they're distinct layers that you can't help but notice because they're in one place all the time. Um, you know, there isn't that, that gradient between layers. So it's interesting. Anyway, so I think mods would be a good one because it takes advantage of the 3D. It really shows it off nicely, you know, kind of jumping into the background and then jumping into the foreground. You're like, whoa, um, I, I think uh, it would be a good fit for that as well. So those two, if I'm allowed to pick two, I'd go for those two. <laughs> very cool very cool yeah that's a that's a tough question to, it is to, to yeah. ask someone that makes a lot of games um all right well for for people out there um you know definitely i think first off we'll, we'll have to have you back on again because you just have such a you know a crazy rich history when it comes to to game development i really love what you guys are doing over at renegade kid and um for people out there if you are um, on Twitter, make sure to follow Jules at uh, at J O O L S W A T S H A M. I'll also put that in the the show notes in case you are driving. Don't don't pull over just yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think you guys are doing some some really great stuff. You have a 3ds. I think those are you know a couple games that you should have um, you know on that that front page. Um, yeah. I, you know, again, I just think you guys are doing some, some really good stuff. And even if you have a Vita, maybe you got, you know, mutant muds on the, on the Vita too. Um, that is just a hell of a digital platform as well. So, uh, any, anything else, anything else that you would want to mention that, that you guys have coming up that people should keep an eye out for? Um, trying to think now. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I get the, finally, the, uh, the remaining episodes of Moon Chronicles, um, should be coming out in January this month. Cool. Um, with their sitting at Nintendo now, um, they have been approved, uh, by Nintendo of America. Uh, now they're off to 
Japan, uh, <clears throat> uh, Nintendo HQ in Japan for their final approval um, before they can be released in North America. And um, so that's the last three episodes. So it's, you know, episode two, three, and four. And all three of them will be released all at the same time uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> so as soon as they're fully approved, boom, they'll get released. So they'll be coming. I'm pretty sure, well, I should say I'm pretty hopeful they'll be coming out in January uh, this month uh, on the, on the eShop. So that's, uh, and I apologize for anyone who, <laughs> who's been waiting for those. Um, so our, our only way of trying to make it, uh, make a slight amends there is just by releasing all of them at the same time. So everyone can just get in there and have fun rather than wait, uh, in between episodes. Awesome. Well, definitely, uh, hit up the eShop, make sure you're checking in every single week and, and see where those pop up. And, uh, again, I can't wait to, to check. I never got to uh, play Dementium 2, so I'm looking forward to grabbing that on the eShop as well. So, um, yeah, Jules, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come on and to hang on and talk about some old games, but also the new games that you guys are working over, working on over at Renegade Kid. And I'll definitely have to talk to you down the road. Yeah, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thank, I love talking about games, so uh, it's it's been an honor. So uh, thanks, man. I really, it's been a, a lot of fun chatting with you about stuff. Well, I appreciate pl- it. My pleasure. And uh, for everyone else out there, if you are enjoying the show, please hit up iTunes and submit a review on there. You can subscribe and you can also check out our Patreon if you enjoy the show and you want to help support it starting at like a dollar per episode. And you can even set a limit. It's just at patreon.com slash back in my play. If we hit that $100 goal, uh, we'll actually do an RPG on the show. So maybe that... Maybe that will happen down the road. But uh, other than that, thank you, as always, for listening, and we will catch you next time.